hello. It's Jacob Hill with GRC Academy. Today, I'm here with Donata Stroink-Skillrude. Donata, how are you today? Good. Excited to talk about privacy and cybersecurity. Thank you for having me here. Awesome. Thank you for coming on. Donata is the president of a company called Termageddon, and I'm actually a client of hers, and I bought that product several years ago. Excited to have her on today. Tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today. So I'm an attorney licensed in Illinois and a certified information privacy professional. I'm also the chair of the American Bar Association's e-privacy committee, member of the ABA's Science and Technology Council and the Cybersecurity Legal Task Force, and a fellow at the American Bar Foundation. I'm also the president of Chermageddon. So my life involves lots of privacy laws, lots of contract laws, and keeping up to date with everything, which, as everyone knows, gets increasingly difficult with all the new legislation. What is Termageddon? Tell us about that. Termageddon, we're a auto-updating website policy solution. So we create privacy policies, terms of service, cookie policies, things like that for our clients. And as the laws change, we automatically update those with newly required disclosures. So we ask clients a series of questions. So like the first set of questions helps the software determine what privacy laws apply to them and therefore what disclosures their privacy policy needs to contain. And then the remainder of the questions are based around those disclosures and their privacy and their business practices. And after the policies are generated, we keep them much up to date with changing legislation. So what's the big deal about privacy? How does privacy impact the average person? So really different people view privacy in different ways, right? So at least for me, in my opinion, the big deal about privacy is that people are constantly subject to various harms because they don't actually have control over their personal information. So a great example here is, let's say I'm just a regular consumer and I want to purchase something online. Let's say I'm buying shoes. It's understandable and expected to have to exchange personal information with a company, right? So if I want those shoes shipped to me, I have to share my shipping address with them because otherwise, how else would I get those items? But what the problem is nowadays is that after that expected exchange of information, we really have no control over the information after that. So that information could be sold, shared. We could receive endless marketing emails, endless text messages, endless automated calls. The company could fail to protect that information, could be subject to a data breach. And we really have no control over any of that. And that's really why I like privacy laws in general, because they provide us with greater control over our personal information. So we can prevent that exploitation and we can choose the level of interaction that we want to have with the company. Mm, that's interesting. Can you give us a basic history lesson on privacy laws? Sure. So we have some older privacy laws in the United States and the EU. So in the U.S., we have the U.S. Privacy Act of 1974, HIPAA, FERPA, FINRA. Those are really federal privacy laws, and they apply to a very specific segment of personal information or to a very specific controller. So, for example, HIPAA protects health information. FINRA protects financial information. So these privacy laws, they really protect very sensitive personal information. But there was really no protection for regular personal information like names and email addresses that are very commonly collected through the Internet now. And in the EU, we had the EU's Data Protection Directive of 1995, which was a precursor to GDPR. And it really shows, at least to me, the fundamental difference between EU and U.S. In the U.S., we're much more reactive. We wait until a specific harm takes place, and then we try to remedy that harm. 
And I think a great example here is the Video Privacy Protection Act. That one was passed because somebody was being considered for the Supreme Court. And during the nominations, there was a journalist who went to this person's local video rental store, something like a blockbuster. And they got a store clerk to provide them a list of all the videos that this nominee watched, like all the tapes that they rented. And it really wasn't anything scandalous that was exposed there. He kind of liked war movies and stuff that everyone watched. But everyone got really upset about that. So they passed the Video Privacy Protection Act, which protects mm -hmm. video store rental records or video watching records. There really is like a specific harm that happened. And then we try to remedy that harm. But in the EU, privacy is really viewed much more broadly and proactively. So they don't necessarily wait until a specific harm happens and then create a law to fix that specific harm and nothing else. They view privacy in general and protecting privacy in general and making laws more future-proof. So it's trying to accommodate for future technologies, including the current ones as well. Gotcha. Interesting. So everybody's heard about the GDPR. Would you say it's the gold standard of privacy laws today? A lot of people would probably be mad at me for saying this, but yeah, I would say so. So GDPR, a lot of people hate it because it has a lot of very stringent requirements. It's very highly enforced. There's a lot of fines being issued for GDPR noncompliance all the time. But Really, it's a privacy law that has stood the test of time pretty well, at least so far. And it's something that provides individuals in the EU with privacy rights, which is really cool because here in the U.S., when it comes to regular personal information like names, emails, phone numbers, we have each state proposing and passing their own privacy laws because we don't have a federal law for that kind of information. And it's really creating this patchwork of requirements and obligations that's really hard to navigate versus in the EU with GDPR. There's some very minor differences between each member country in the EU, but generally the requirements are essentially the same. So it's much easier to navigate than what we have in the U.S., even though it's a more stringent privacy law. Interesting. Does it impact U.S.-based companies? It does. GDPR can apply to you if you have an establishment in the EU, if you mm -hmm. offer goods or services to residents of the EU, regardless of your business location, or if you monitor the behavior of residents of the EU, again, regardless of your location as well. So U.S.-based businesses get caught up in the offering goods or services or monitoring the behavior of residents. So, for example, a lot of times the use of analytics tools like Google Analytics could mean that you're monitoring the behavior of residents of the EU, meaning that GDPR applies to you. And also, I did want to point out that there have been U.S.-based companies fined under GDPR. A really good resource that I like to use is called EnforcementTracker.com, and that lists all of the fines issued under GDPR and who they were issued to and why. And that resource is very helpful, too. I know that the U.S. states are passing privacy laws. I've seen posts from yourself and updates on Termageddon as well. Talk to us about the states that have passed the privacy laws and give us a quick summary of them. Sure. So we have a lot now, which again illustrates the fact that we need a federal privacy law because having to comply with all of these state privacy laws, which are different and conflicting at some points, mm -hmm. is difficult. But Generally, we have California with three privacy laws, Nevada, Delaware, Virginia, Colorado, Utah, Connecticut, Iowa, Indiana, Tennessee, Montana. And we may have Texas coming up soon, too. As of the time of the recording, the Texas privacy law is on the governor's desk waiting for signature. 
what we have in the U.S. is an opt-out model versus an opt-in model. In the EU, there's an opt-in model, which means that you can't process data, so you can't collect it, use it, share it, or anything else unless there is an exception that applies. So one of those exceptions is consent of the consumer. Another exception is sending a contract or performing on a contract, things like that. Versus in the U.S., we have an opt-out model, which means that you can essentially do whatever you want until the consumer says no. So you could sell information, you could share it, you could use it, you could collect it, you could do all of those things unless the consumer says no. And what's interesting with these new privacy laws is that they're targeting very specific things. So they're targeting the sale of data, right? So consumers can opt out of the sale of data or their targeted advertising is a big deal right now with these new privacy laws. So they want consumers to be able to opt out of targeted ads. And they do provide privacy rights to consumers, which I think is great. Some of these privacy laws only apply to larger businesses, while others apply to small businesses as well. So there's really no kind of standard here either. A lot of privacy laws were based on CPRA or CPA at the time, which it has its own issues as well. So it's a hodgepodge of requirements. And I think as that hodgepodge of requirements increases, I think it's going to be increasingly difficult for businesses to comply. Okay, interesting. Which state law would you say is the most restrictive today? If you take into account regulations, I would say CPRA, probably the most restrictive. So the California Privacy Rights Act, that's the law that amended the CPA, California Consumer Privacy Act. And then we recently got new regulations for that as well. There's a lot of requirements there, but just by the nature of how the CPA came about, which was that it was initially written by a property developer and considered, written, accepted, all of those things in a matter of seven days. There's a lot of issues with it. So, for example, CPRA requires you to disclose whether you sell personal information. On the surface, that makes a lot of sense, but they define sell as really broad. So mm. it could be the exchange of personal information for money or for anything else of value. For example, let's say you have Google Analytics, right? So you exchange personal information like IP address for the value of analytics to see who visited your website and what pages they went on and how long they stayed there. Under the CPRA model, that could potentially be considered a sale of personal data. But that's not how consumers see it. So consumers saying, you sell my data, that means you give it to a broker, you get money in return, and then they call me 50,000 times with various product offerings. I think it's very confusing for consumers to see on websites, we sell your information, they automatically think the company is up to no good versus the way that the law is written, it could be like literally anything could be considered sale. So I think things like that are reflective of the fact that there wasn't a long process with a lot of stakeholders involved when it comes to writing these privacy laws. And CPRA and CCPA, they were some of the first more robust privacy laws in the U.S. They were passed. So now all the states think, oh, it passed. That means it's a great privacy law, but it has some issues with it. I know the United States has a federal privacy law that's in the works. Where is that and how does it compare to GDPR? Yeah, so right now the ADPA, it's being considered for reintroduction. So it didn't pass last year. Um, so this year they can reintroduce it and potentially pass it this year if things go right, which is very hard. But one of the things that's stopping it from reintroduction is that some legislators want to add AI provisions into the bill. 
So they're trying to figure out what AI provisions to add into the bill. And then, you know, if they can figure that out, maybe they'll reintroduce it, maybe not. So it's really up in the air. They tried to pass it last year. There's a lot of pushback, a lot of issues with it. It's similar to GDPR in the sense that it's a federal privacy law, right? It requires privacy by design. It provides privacy rights to consumers. And I think that's really where the similarities end. It's more of an opt-out mechanism, which is very popular in the U.S., like I said before, than an opt-in mechanism, which is more popular in the EU. I think it's reflective of the hodgepodge as well. It's really trying to target specific harms instead of protecting privacy more broadly. I really think it's much better than nothing, but it really is reflective of the drafting process, which is very fast. And then the passage process is very long. So I really think that we'd be wise to flip that around where the drafting process is longer and then the passage process is shorter. But we'll see what comes out of it. Maybe it'll be reintroduced this year. Maybe not. Interesting. What businesses are subject to the U.S. privacy laws at the state level? Are small businesses impacted, for example? Yeah, certain privacy laws like CALOPA, Nevada's revised statute, Chapter 603A, DOPA, those do apply to small businesses. So they'll apply if you do business in a certain area or if you collect the personal information of residents of certain areas. The other privacy laws will apply if you have a certain amount of revenue, usually it's 25 million or more. If you collect the personal information of a certain number of residents of that state, or if you derive a certain percentage of your revenue from the sale of personal information. Let's say you're a small business, right? And you don't need to worry about these big privacy laws because they don't really apply to you by the statute itself, but you're processing data on behalf of a larger business. So let's say I'm a website designer and I have a project that I'm working on for Walmart where I'm setting up their email marketing list. So managing their email marketing list, which means I'm managing that data. If a company like Walmart is my client and they're required to comply with these bigger privacy laws, they may ask me to comply with them as well because they have to make sure that I'm processing data in a way that's not in violation of that law because it's their data and they're subject to that law. So it is very common for smaller businesses to get caught up in this compliance stuff if they're processing data on behalf of larger companies. Yeah, that's very interesting. In the DOD world and the federal government contracting world, we're dealing with flow downs from prime contractors to subs. So same kind of issue there. Absolutely. And I think that illustrates the fact that you need to read the contracts that you sign. Because if you don't read the contract, you're not aware of the fact that you need to comply with that law and you're not in compliance, you're automatically in breach and you could lose that contract and you could lose that client. And some privacy laws do provide that the company that's controlling the data needs to audit the processor as well. So if you are required to comply in that sense, you should be ready for audits too. Gotcha. Let's talk about a real world example here. Let's say I am a IT service provider. I might run Office 365 administration for clients out there. How would privacy laws affect my operations for my pipeline customers coming in through my website, but also for everyday operations with existing clients as I'm working with them and then as I offboard? So the first thing that you'd want to figure out is what privacy laws apply to you. So each privacy law has a different set of requirements. A great example is the requirement for a privacy policy. Each privacy law has that requirement. So it says website owners need to have a privacy policy. But each privacy law has different disclosures that it requires that privacy policy to make, right? So you need to figure out what laws apply to you to figure out what you actually need to do. 
So that would really be your first step, figuring out what laws apply to you, whether through the statute themselves or through the contracts that you have signed. And the second point would be to figure out the requirements under each law, whether that's data minimization, so not collecting more data than you need, or having to have data retention policies in place, or providing certain privacy rights to consumers. So you would have to have a process in place that kind of outlines how you will respond to privacy rights requests, because multiple privacy laws have a time limit under which you need to respond. If you're beyond that time limit in your response, because you're just figuring out how to delete data now, but that's going to be a problem because you're going to be in violation, right? So figuring those things out, how people can exercise their privacy rights and how you can do that internally. Like, where do you find the data? Has your data been mapped? How do you actually delete it? How do you correct it in all your databases? Where's the data stored? Things like that. And also making sure that you're using products that are not in violation of privacy laws. So vendor due diligence and things like that. A great example is Google Analytics has been found to be multiple times in violation of GDPR. So knowing that, you probably wouldn't want to use Google Analytics if you're subject to GDPR. So making sure that all of those things are in place and then also having a strategy to keep those things up to date. Texas, as of this moment, there's a privacy law that's ready for the governor's signature, not signed yet. But you should be aware of this because once those laws are signed, if they apply to you, you will need to change your practices to comply with those laws. So making sure that you're staying up to date on things as well. That's excellent. Thank you. Talk about data retention policies a bit more in relation to these laws and is there liability in keeping information longer than you need to? And what are the risks as well? All of us in cybersecurity know that you shouldn't be keeping data that you don't need. I guess the first step when it comes to data retention is not collecting data that you don't need. If you need a customer's email address and that's all you need to create their account, don't collect their social security number as well. So the more data you collect, the more data you have to keep and the more at risk you are of breaches and the consequences of breaches as well. So a great example here between U.S. and EU again. So GDPR requires data to be kept only for as long as it's required to achieve the purpose for which the information was collected. So if I collected the information solely to subscribe someone to my email newsletter, when they unsubscribe to the newsletter, I no longer need their data because they can't use it for that purpose anymore. So I had to delete it. CPRA requires you to disclose how long you will keep each category of personal data. And it also says that you can no longer retain data forever. Virginia's privacy law or Utah's privacy law say you need to collect the minimum amount of data required, but it doesn't specify how long you can keep it. But those privacy laws are newer, so it is very much possible that with regulations coming out from those states' attorneys general, that maybe this will be reinterpreted and you'll need to have a data retention period. But really, when it comes to data retention, you don't want to keep data that you don't need and you don't want to keep data forever because it increases your risk of breach because the more data you have, the more attractive of a target you are. It increases the cost of a data breach because at the very least, you have to inform more customers that their data was breached. And it also just puts you at risk because when somebody wants you to delete their data, you have to dig through a ton of data to find it because you're keeping a bunch of stuff you didn't need. And also you could accidentally violate someone's privacy rights. So if somebody sent you an email and you put them on this list and then 10 years later, you accidentally send them email marketing, even though they never signed up for that, you know, you could potentially be fined for that. 
where normally if you deleted the data you didn't need, maybe you wouldn't have sent that email by accident. This is interesting. What I'm getting from this is a lot of businesses are going to have to make investments in technology to be able to comply with these, to be able to actually find the information that needs to be removed. So e-discovery, that type of technology, they'll have to make those investments to be able to comply. That's really interesting. Yeah, definitely. We'll need a lot more technology to try to comply with these things. If you're not storing and collecting and retaining the data of hundreds of thousands of people that you don't need, it's going to be significantly cheaper to comply. Yes, excellent. Talk to me about the resources and talent a company would need to comply with these new privacy laws. So I think it it all starts at the top, right? So I think the executive team needs to be informed that privacy laws are here, that you can no longer just do whatever you want with private information, and that there are restrictions on how you can use information, and that there are consequences of noncompliance, and that it is important to comply with privacy laws. I think it really starts at the top. And apart from that, having a privacy attorney on staff or as a consultant is always extremely helpful because they will not just help you figure out what laws apply to you and what the requirements actually are. They'll also help you stay up to date with new requirements and help you prepare and maybe even help future-proof your program. And I think it really affects every single department almost at a company. So if you think about it, marketing is affected because they're the ones who communicate with customers. They're the ones who send emails. They're the ones who send text message campaigns or inform cold calling campaigns, things like that. So that team definitely needs to be trained. It affects IT because they're the ones who need to set up how data is collected and where it's stored and all of those other things. It even affects HR because you need to have privacy training and cybersecurity training and things like that. So it really affects almost every department at a company. And I really think the work starts at the top. But then the most important part that I would say is instilling the fact that this is important to your employees, as well as having training for employees is extremely important too. Because if you don't train employees on cybersecurity or privacy, they will do it wrong and they will do it in violation of privacy laws just because they don't know. And some of these requirements are bizarre. Like CPRA requires you to have a toll-free phone number in certain cases for exercising Mm. privacy rights. If you don't have the toll-free phone number, you might just get a call to your regular customer service number asking about privacy rights. And those calls, they can't be messed up because you're opening up yourself to fines. So that's what I would say. Yeah. That's interesting. I've read that some state laws allow consumers to sue. When could they sue a company? So at this point, the privacy laws that allow consumers to sue are in case of a data breach. So most privacy laws are enforced by state attorneys general who can impose fines on companies for noncompliance. But certain privacy laws like CPRA allow consumers to sue in case of a data breach. But what I think is important to note here is that there are a number of proposed privacy bills, like there's a few bills in New York that would allow consumers to sue for any violation if passed, Mm -hmm. including not responding to a privacy rights request or not having a compliant privacy policy or processing data incorrectly or not honoring opt-out signals. So I think it'll be interesting to see if this happens in the future, if we get a private right of action. It's always a point of very high contention. There's a lot of 
arguing and back and forth that happens about that because it's not good for business to allow consumers to sue for violations. But I think it's good for consumers because state attorneys general don't necessarily have the time or the bandwidth to prosecute every single violation, no matter how minor. And a lot of companies get away with a lot of stuff versus Mm -hmm. including a private right of action. I think it would really make sure that companies are complying. You had mentioned getting the whole company involved with privacy and the compliance. And obviously something that we think about there is governance, risk and compliance. Are there frameworks out there that can help us meet the requirements of these laws? Yeah. So NIST has a framework for that. And what's really interesting, and this is the first time that I've seen this, Tennessee Information Privacy Act, a privacy law that was passed, I think, like a month ago or something like that. It actually provides a safe harbor for compliance with NIST in their privacy program, which I think is really cool. The NIST Privacy Framework, is that right? Yeah, that's correct. And one thing that I really like about NIST, and listeners can Google this, it's like one of the coolest things I've ever personally seen, but it actually provides crosswalks. And crosswalks is a spreadsheet. So it basically says the difference between the requirements of a particular privacy law and how it maps to the NIST privacy framework. So, for example, things that overlap, like inventorying the purposes for data actions, right? So privacy laws say that you must have a specific purpose for processing data or mapping data processing, which can help you come up with those purposes as well as finding the data when the time Mm -hmm. comes. Identifying risk, contracts with data processors to ensure that they have met certain requirements, vendor management, privacy policies, processes, and procedures. Those are just some of the things that overlap between the NIST privacy framework and certain privacy laws. So I think it'll be interesting to see how many people use the NIST privacy framework to help them comply. I think it's a great kind of intermediate step to make sure that you're in compliance, but I would definitely not rely entirely on the NIST privacy framework because there are differences between the framework and between privacy laws. So you have to be careful about that. A lot of companies are ISO 27001 compliant or certified. How does ISO help them comply? So I think having those policies and procedures in place are very helpful. So for example, one of the things that you do in ISO 27001 is write up a privacy program. So your privacy program document for both ISO and the privacy laws that you need to comply with can include the requirements for all of that. Or ISO requires you to have training for employees and you can include, you know, you have privacy and cybersecurity training for ISO. Well, you can just include the privacy requirements in that training and train your employees on that at the same time. And in addition to that, different policies and procedures like backup policies or data retention policies or data destruction policies, right? Those can be very helpful for helping comply with privacy laws. But again, there are differences. So I would not just say if you're ISO 27001 compliant, you're compliant with every privacy law because that's not the case. You really aren't. So it's definitely important to make sure that you keep the requirements of both in mind when you're working through those programs. Gotcha. Thank you. What do you think will be the biggest challenges for companies as they seek to comply with these new privacy laws? So I can say with pretty good certainty that keeping up to date will be the hardest challenge because there's so much that's constantly going on. Because if you're doing business online, you don't just need to track U.S. You need to track what's going on in Canada, the EU, Australia, all over the world. We're seeing a lot of these privacy laws change. 
So a lot of countries are trying to change their privacy laws to meet the requirements of today because we have so many more technologies than when the laws were initially written that affect privacy. Like Australia's Privacy Act was written in 1988. It's held up relatively well through time, but there are things that are new like AI that affect privacy that you just need to update the privacy law and update its requirements. So you have all of these changes across the world to existing privacy laws. In the U.S., you have a slew of new state privacy laws. You also have a slew of state privacy bills that are waiting to be passed. So it seems like the requirements are just going up. And then on top of that, you get the regulations, you have cases, you have enforcement actions, all of which you need to stay on top of to make sure that you're not doing things that are improper. So I really think that staying up to date will be the biggest challenge for the Mm -hmm. next couple of years, at least. What sources would you recommend for staying up to date with those changes? So it depends on how much you want to invest into this. So I use LexisNexis StateNet, which helps me track privacy bills. That's only throughout the U.S. at the time. And I also use just regular LexisNexis to track enforcement actions across the U.S. The next resource would be the International Association of Privacy Professionals, and that's IAPP.org. That has really great news resources. It has really great state privacy bill trackers. It has really great white papers and webinars and things like that. And then the American Bar Association is also great. Part of science and technology section, the e-privacy committee, we help members stay on track as well. But it is a lot to keep track of for sure. Excellent. Where can people find you? So really, you can find me or my company, termageddon.com, T-E-R-M-A-G-E-D-D-O-N.com. And then you can find me on LinkedIn, just under my name, Donata strength Skillward. Excellent. Thank you so much, Donata. I really enjoyed the conversation. I think people will really learn a lot from this. Thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, thank you so much for having me.